Hello, everybody. This is Joseph P. Farrell with news and views from the Nefarium on Thursday, October 7th, 2021. Uh, a bit of unusual news, but kind of what I've been predicting was going to be happening over the past few years. But anyway, before we get to that, uh, don't forget we have the short format vid chat, which is first up this month. That will be not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow. But I've already posted the vid chat uh, in the members area, so get your comments and questions in. You've got a week. But remember, this is the short format vid chat, so please try and keep your uh, questions and comments to short or medium length. Um, but that will be next week at the usual time, 3 p.m. Uh, on Friday afternoon. There is no vid chat tomorrow. Um, and the other bit of news is Catherine uh, Fitz and I just recorded uh, her third quarter wrap-up. Uh, part one should be out sometime today, at least on Solari. I imagine that part one will be on my website sometime this weekend. And then part two of uh, her quarterly wrap-up will be next week. And again, that should come out on Thursday on Solari and probably the following weekend on my website. All right, now... For a number of years, I've been pointing out that Japan looks to be slowly severing connections with the United States while simultaneously mouthing or actually participating and continuing to participate in the alliance system with the United States in the Pacific. Now, there's been some developments just this week, literally in the last two days, <laughs> okay? And these are seemingly unrelated stories, but I think they kind of confirm to a certain extent my hypothesis that Japan has decided that it must embark on its own independent diplomatic, geopolitical, and economic course as the United States declines. And as I've pointed out in uh, many blogs and some, uh, some of these news and views, Japan is also not going to simply sever ties with the United States. It's going to do a tight walking dance between the United States and Asian powers. And in the meantime, it is slowly and quietly going to beef up its own military capabilities. Now, Two stories have happened this week. The first one is comparatively minor. The second one is, again, one of those stories that looks insignificant, but I think it could turn out to be very major. So I'm linking these for you. You can follow along. The first story is a story from Zero Hedge uh, titled U.S. Stealth Jets. Listen to this. U.S. Stealth Jets become the first fighters to fly from a Japanese ship since World War II. In other words, Japan is back in the aircraft carrier business, folks. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit once we get into this article about what this carrier is and what it represents. So let's go ahead. In another move signaling the deepening U.S.-Japan military relationship, two U.S. stealth fighters practiced taking off and landing on Japan's largest warship, the Japanese ship Izumo. 
The flights happened Sunday with Japan's Ministry of Defense releasing photos and videos of the event early this week, hyping the major advance in its maritime self-defense forces operations. Crucially, it marked the first time since World War II that a fixed-wing aircraft operated from a Japanese warship. Marine Corps Commandant General David Berger was earlier quoted as saying, quote, we are not going to go on deployment, but we're actually going to fly the U.S. Marine Corps F-35s off of a Japanese ship, unquote. Japan's military is working on adapting the 24,000-ton Izumo-class helicopter carriers for fixed-wing operations. The pair of U.S. aircraft Marine Corps F-35B Lightning II Joint Strike Fighters conducted successful short takeoff vertical landings from the mid-sized carrier's deck. The period of joint Japanese and Marine aircraft trials are set to continue aboard the Izumo through October 7th. One aviation analysis monitoring site hailed it in its headline that Japan rejoins the aircraft carrier club with the U.S. Marine Corps F-35B landing. And I'm skipping almost to the end of this article for one more paragraph quotation. After the concept of fixed-wing operations is proven aboard the Izumo, that warship will then undergo more extensive revisions to better support F-35Bs during routine operations over sustained periods. So far, the vessel has received a heat-resistant flight deck to cope with the F-35B's scorching exhaust as well as changes to the lighting and deck markings. Okay? Now, before we continue, the Izumo, as the article points out, was launched a few years ago, and it was billed as a helicopter uh, carrier. It's not was not designed technically as an aircraft carrier. That said, when it was designed, it was also pointed out that these carriers look like they could be easily upgraded to carry fixed-wing aircraft. And that's what I suspect this is. And secondly, my suspicion is you're watching the build-out, uh, a, a kind of deliberately programmed plan to rebuild Japanese carrier fleet, starting small and moving larger. Now, Significantly enough, the next carrier that's in this class is a carrier that's named the Akagi, <laughs> okay? And for those of you who are World War II history buffs like myself, you'll know that Akagi is one of the carriers that was the flagship of the Japanese fleet that hit Pearl Harbor. So in other words, Japan is even naming these carriers after their significant World War II fleet carriers. Now, what I suspect is going on here is the United States is doing this largely as a joint test of concept with the Japanese that these carriers can and be, indeed be retrofitted to become uh, small aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft carriers. And the other thing this is going to do is it's going to give Japan experience again in building those large types of carriers. So my prediction here is Watch for Japan as it, uh, over the next few years, expands its defense forces. Watch for them to start building much larger aircraft carriers. So uh, I, think, uh, I think this is basically the beginning of a drop in the bucket. Now, my point here is to emphasize 
that what you're really looking at is technology and experience transfer. Because let's remember, Japan has not had operating aircraft carriers since the end of World War II, and therefore has not had the benefit of maintaining and operating those kinds of ships. So that, in other words, there's a lack of tradition in the Japanese Navy, and this is what's being filled by this event. Now, that event in itself is small, okay? But I want now to turn your attention to the other thing that happened the day before <laughs> the aircraft carrier incident. This is an article that uh, was written by Vladimir Odinsov for the New Eastern Outlook, and it was datelined on the 5th. The title of the article is, quote, Is Mongolia Refusing a Non-Permanent Seat in the UN Security Council? All right. And I want you to listen to just a few paragraphs from this article because if you listen carefully enough, you'll notice there's something missing, pardon me, in between the lines of this article. And it will be very readily apparent to most of you. Quote, on September 23rd, the president of Mongolia, Uknagin Kurosuk, and I hope, <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing that approximately closely to Mongolian, took part in a full session of the UN General Assembly in which he set out Mongolia's position on various current issues in international relations. Okay, so there's the basic background. <laughs> this is coming out of his speech recently to the UN. So now, skipping several paragraphs, listen carefully. Quote, in 2014, Mongolia's leadership mentioned the possibility that it might seek election as a non-permanent member of the Security Council in 2022. In addition to its five permanent members, the UN Security Council also has 10 non-permanent members selected from UN member states for a two-year period, and there is never any shortage of candidates for such seats. In order for a country to obtain a non-permanent seat on the Security Council, its candidature must be supported by two-thirds of the votes cast by the current member states. The preparations for such a vote and the nomination of candidates usually begins <coughs> pardon me, 10 years before the election, and the countries in question make great effort to gain the support of the international community. It is therefore significant that in his speech at the 76th session of the UN General Assembly, Mr. Kurlsuk made no mention of his country's hopes to obtain a non-permanent seat in the UN Security Council. This reticence could perhaps be explained by the fact that Mongolia's new government has given up its claim to such a seat in favor of another country that country could quite possibly be Japan, which, with which Mongolia has been developing particularly friendly relations in recent years, seeing it as its third neighbor, and which applied for a seat as a representative of the Asian states at the 74th session of the UN General Assembly in 2019. 
During the severe crisis, which raved the, uh, ravaged the Mongolian economy in the early, in, pardon me, in the early 1990s, Japan was the country's main supporter, providing it with humanitarian aid, financial aid, and low-interest loans. For Mongolia, Japan represents an opportunity to diversify its foreign trade and sources of investment. Japan is currently the only country with which Mongolia has signed a free trade agreement. In recent years, Japan has been Mongolia's third largest trading partner, with more than half of the country's cars being imported from Japan. Bilateral trade is dominated by imports of Japanese goods into Mongolia, although the volume of direct Japanese investments in the Mongolian economy has not yet met Ulaanbaatar's expectations. Scientific and cultural contacts also play a significant role in the development of Mongolian-Japanese relations, with Japanese culture increasingly popular in Mongolia, which has significantly contributed to the success of Mongolian sumo wrestlers performing in Japan. And that's all I want to read. Now, if you listen to that, you'll notice something. Mongolia referred to Japan as its third neighbor. If you look at a map, there's a reason why. Mongolia is landlocked and shares borders, direct borders, with only two other countries, and guess who they are? China and Russia. Okay? Now, that little fact or factoid should make you raise your eyebrows. Because for goods to be flowing between Japan and Russia means that, or pardon me, between Japan and Mongolia, it means that Russia or China have to be giving their assent to that. And with the bad blood between China and Japan, you can bet your bottom dollar that the one that is standing in the sidelines of this trade development is Russia. Now, I've been arguing for many uh, months, folks, that the emergence of the so-called Quad, which popular reasoning has the United States, Japan, Australia, and India as composing that Quad of powers gathered together to combat China. Well, India is an iffy ally in that network, and a more uh, hidden partner, I think, in the Quad is Russia, because if you look at long-range Russian and Chinese interests, they do conflict. Russia wants to build out its infrastructure and be a part of China's Silk Road project as much as China wants it to be, but the problem is Russia will never surrender or become completely obligated to China for the capital and the technology to do that. Enter Japan. So what I suspect you're seeing here with Mongolia is a Japanese attempt to curry more favor with Russia. And I strongly suspect that if, if it were known, if we dug and scratched or were allowed to dig and scratch into this Japanese-Mongolian trade that we've seen outlined in this article, that you're going to find a lot of Russian influence. you got to remember something. Mongolia was a puppet client state of the Soviet Union. So Mongolia's ties with Russia are historical and significant, even though the Soviet period wasn't too popular. But nonetheless, 
uh, I think the attitude was probably better the Soviet Union than communist China. So this is an interesting development. This is one to watch over the next several years. This is not going to bear fruition tomorrow. But I do think you're seeing long-term seismic geopolitical realignments, particularly in Asia. It's just getting started. And we really don't know where it's going to go. But I think the permanent feature here is going to be Japanese presence in northern Asia with Mongolia, Japanese presence and assistance to Russia in Siberia, and probably down the line some sort of agreement between Russia and Japan about the Kuril Islands uh, and a formal end to World War II, which technically they're still fighting. But anyway, that's it, folks. Um, I'll see you on the flip side. Don't forget, there's no vid chat tomorrow. It will be a week from tomorrow. It will be the short format vid chat where you submit your questions and comments actually in the actual comment area in the members area. Anyway, that's it. Someone says, mm, Mongolian barbecue. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been saying watch Italy, watch Japan. Uh, I think you should watch Spain too. Uh, but um, anyway, I, I do think that I do think that things are shaking up, and you know these these are little hints of big realignments to come, and we're just getting started, folks. Anyway, thank you, folks, for popping in to see me, and we'll see you next week. Bye bye, and God bless. <laughs>